Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. We'll be joined by psychological thriller author Susanna Beard. And recommending the best of October's new releases. listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Good morning. Over the next hour, we'll be keeping you up to date with news from the world of books, new releases, bestsellers and recommendations of some great books to read. So thank you for joining us today. We've got a packed show as usual coming up. We're being joined by Susanna Beard, who's an author of five psychological thrillers and whose latest book, The Perfect Neighbour, is out now. Chantelle Farquhar from the Little Bookshop in Cookham has trawled through the 16,000 books that are being released in October to recommend some of her favourites. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. And as usual, in case you've forgotten already, you're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, I say this every week, we do want to hear from you. Uh, If you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, uh, somebody you've just discovered perhaps, uh, or if you're reading um, something new uh, that you've got by your bedside table and you want to share with us, please, please do drop us a line. Uh, You can uh, get in touch with me uh, at julian at river.radio. And we really, really would like to hear from you and all of our fans out there in Algeria too. Don't be shy. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So let's begin with a roundup of those interesting tidbits that we've spotted in the press all about books. And I've learned a new phrase recently, Julie. I have fewer now. Yes, it's the Hawking <laughs> Index. Did you did you know what this was? No, I don't know. Tell me more. So it, it's absolutely fabulous because it absolutely appeals to me. Um, it's a measure of the percentage of a book that people have actually read. So if you're like me and you're times you buy a book under the full expectation that it's absolutely the sort of book that will just be excellent, really interesting and absolutely on my street. And then I suppose I'm thinking that I'm far more serious and erudite than I really am because really what happens is when push comes to shove and I'm given a choice of what to read, I pick up something that's a little bit more page-turny than, um, than erudite. So uh, it's from uh, the Hawking Index is based from Stephen Hawking's Unreadable, I understand, A Brief History of Time, not one that I picked up myself. And I understood that A Brief History of Time knocked off Hillary Clinton's biography from the top position of being a book that lots of people have bought and only read a very small percentage. Oh dear. Well, I suppose that's also a bit of a similar, a bit like BPS. Oh, what's that? Uh, Booker Prize Syndrome. Oh. Because I, th- 
because I think a lot of people in the past, you know, when they've, they've rushed out and they bought the copies and I think probably haven't even got through the first few pages. But my little maxim on that is I always tend to open up the, the, the first page and if it flows and captures me, then that's fine. But I do know what you mean. I mean, if, if something like Hawking, which is pretty heavy going, I think probably you need some some resolve and, and you know, a sort of a lively and bright mind on that day to tackle, I would think. So yes. I can understand it being a bit daunting. Yes, sometimes it's not about the book, it's about the person reading, isn't it? And and one day it's just not for you and then the next day you'll read exactly. through it. And, and, and you say, crikey, well, what was that all about? It was fantastic. Exactly. Anyway, I don't know. Have you uh, ever listened to that great uh, literary quiz um, on the wireless, which is called Quote Unquote? It's oh, on yes. Radio 4. Absolutely, yeah. I love it. Well, it's been announced that this will be the last series with the presenter, Nigel Reese. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, it is a shame. Uh, but, and in the article where uh, Reese made the announcement, he also mentioned that his favourite author was Joseph Conrad. And I don't know if you know, but Joseph Conrad uh, was, the, was the, I suppose, the, the, the catalyst for a, um, a saying being coined, which is, I always take a Conrad when I fly anywhere. So if the plane goes down, I'm not reading rubbish. <laughs> Well, at least he's promoting his own work. <laughs> well, exactly, yes. Um, now flights are, are back on the menu. Um, we should be conscious of the quality of our reading when we go get on board. Not that I'm sure there'll be any mayhem, but you should have a good quality book. So off to your bookseller and, and make a selection. So does that mean we ought to have something that's high up on the Hawking Index? That's sort of... <laughs> yes, yes, because you need to impress your fellow passengers, the person sitting next to you. Absolutely. Right, now we all love an Agatha Christie story we, here on Turning do, Pages. Do. And in the papers over the weekend, a new book has come out that's claimed, despite her, um, her, her seeming to be the doyenne of cosy crime, actually Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple were at the cutting edge of criminal investigation, which is Gosh. fabulous. Mm. So the book's called CSI Cream, sorry, Crime Scene <laughs> Investigation by Clara Valentine. And she identifies a number of areas where future detectives would be indebted to Agatha Christie. So uh, Dame Agatha was a nurse during World War I and became very knowledgeable about poisons then. And also she was a pharmacist um, later ah, on. Right. So her very first book, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, of course, is about poisons. And this is when we first meet Hercule Poirot, who carries around a crime scene kit. Now, we see this on telly all the time, don't mm, we? All the time, yes. I mean, watching those programmes. But he would secure evidence in test tubes and envelopes. And this is something that the real police force didn't introduce for a further eight years. Good grief, really. They were inspired by Agatha, yeah? Gosh. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the use of the term scene of the crime, which again mm. is something you listen to every time you watch a police drama on telly, was first used in Murder on the Links in 1923. Gosh, that's amazing. And I bet you the reason why the police force didn't introduce those um, crime kits for eight years is because it, it was a woman that invented it and the, we men are not going to do that. Probably, probably. <laughs> well, I spotted an article in the Sunday Telegraph um, saying that books at home protect children from dementia. Um, apparently, children who have access to a large selection of books and are exposed to the written word from a very early age uh, form more resilience to 
to diseases like Alzheimer's. Um, uh, and this applies, interestingly, regardless of wealth, uh, education or physical health. So, you know, a, a child from any background will benefit. Gosh, that's so interesting. It, it is, isn't it? Yeah. So it suggested parents to increase the number of books in their household, especially if the children are under the age of 10, giving them access to, to, to words and, to encu- and, importantly, to encourage them to read as often as possible. And I think the thing is that it's not just... Um, books for children, but I mean a whole variety of books. So that as the child grows um, and and their 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 skills in reading increase, that they should have a complete range of books. Yeah. So it's really interesting, I think. It is, and absolutely, and it's not a not a request for people to go out and spend lots of money because no, the libraries exactly. are there. There are exactly in the public libraries. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because this is what I did as my my father didn't believe in television, so we went to the public library, and I think I was going I was going three times a week um, oh. and getting my three books. You know, um, absolutely. So, we went all the time, yeah. and I was yeah. yeah. Yeah, every week we went to, and then we used to go to the library and then to a, a little old second-hand bookshop <laughs> that would oh, be on right. Saturday morning. It'd be absolutely fabulous. <laughs> what, and sell the library books? I'm no, shocked, buy more books. Oh, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> this is River Radio and you're listening to Turning Pages with Heather and Julian. Chantal from the Little Bookshop in Cookham has been looking at all the books that have been published in October and will be sharing her recommendations with us later in the programme. And Julie and I will be diving into books inspired or about water. But first, I've been talking to the author Susanna Beard, whose latest book, The Perfect Neighbour, has just been published. Let's listen to my interview with her. Suzanne, on your latest thriller, The Perfect Neighbour. I must admit, I read it in an evening, so it was absolutely, absolutely gripping. I couldn't put it down. So I see it's being described as a, a gritty and compulsive domestic thriller. How would you describe the book? Um, well, I wrote it as a psychological thriller um, because I tend to write in that genre anyway. But I think the psychological Part of it comes from one of the protagonists and not from the other. So I I wrote it really, I suppose it is domestic noir. I would call it domestic noir, but it is also a psychological thriller because you don't, you don't really, it's suspenseful, isn't it? You don't really know what's going to happen. Yes. It reminded me of Girl on the Train in a little bit of a way, right? Gillian Flynn. You know, that whole idea of peeping into somebody else's life. Yes, and there's sort of quite a frizzle to do that. So, so just sort of describe the book. Give me a summary of the book and the characters. Well, the book is about, I suppose the, the theme is domestic slavery. And it concerns a rather upmarket street in the vicinity of Reading, and I haven't specified where, where all the houses have kind of big gates and security and it's, you know, hard to see from the street who's there and what they're doing and things. And I've got one one of my characters is a woman called Beth, who's moved with her family from the outskirts of London, ostensibly for her husband's job. And it it sort of comes out a little later on that that isn't quite the full story. And she's landed somewhere that she's not familiar with. She loved where she was before because she had neighbours all around her and they were very friendly and it was very sort of sociable environment. And she lands in this street where everybody's got their gates shut and their security cameras on. And this is about her efforts to get to know 
the neighbours through various means, actually calling round, which didn't really work because they've all got, you know, entry phones and things like that. And and she has a drinks party, which actually turns out relatively well. And through that, that drinks party, she gets to know her immediate neighbour, who is a Russian, beautiful Russian woman called Oksana, who comes on her own, impresses everybody with her beauty and her clothing and so on, and then sort of disappears again and is a bit of a mystery and obviously is a bit of a talking point as well. And through various means, the first neighbour, Beth, who's looking to make friends with people, um, ends up having to go into Oksana's garden a couple of times and spots something that she finds quite mysterious and a bit disturbing. And I'm not going to say exactly what, because it will spoil the story, but she then wonders whether she should find out more about it, whether she should investigate, whether she should leave it alone. It's all about whether you should, if you suspect your neighbours of doing something, I don't know, unethical or immoral, whether you should interfere. And I, I suppose I was investigating... You know, you can live next to people for years and years and not really know what they're doing. Oh, yes, yeah. I think you never know a person, even a really good friend, yeah. uh, because behind closed doors, it's their private life, isn't it? And you never yeah. really get that. So you've exactly. already said it's uh, it's about domestic slavery. So what inspired you to write this book? Um, well, actually, I'd, I'd read about it, but I also heard something, and I think it might have been on the radio or at an event I went to, about the problem of... Um, modern slavery. So that's not just domestic slavery, that's things like car washes and nail bars. And what a hidden secret it is, really, especially the domestic slavery end, because it's very difficult to know whether somebody is being exploited when they really can't do very much about it because they live in their employer's house and they, you know, they have, they, they'll lose their job or, or, or they're not registered as, you know, living in the country even. So having heard about this, it sort of intrigued me as to what actually happens with people who are used and abused as domestic slaves. And I know it happens a lot in London, or has done, it's certainly been reported in London, but I also realised that in Reading it was a particular problem, the overall modern slavery issue. Yes, I think probably more the car washes and the the nail bar type, but it was the... It was the domestic one that really interested me. It it sort of intrigued me. So how did you go about researching? Well, I spoke to the Salvation Army. I spoke to a couple of charities who were involved in it. Obviously, I researched online. I looked at news stories about the issue, you know, and bit by bit I sort of pieced together how, how it happens and what happens to these people when they arrive in the country and how they're duped into become slaves to their employers, not so, really. But has your perspective, now you've done this research, has your perspective changed in terms of what you're aware of as you're going about your day-to-day life? Oh, uh, yes, definitely. I, I do very often wonder about these big houses with all their security and what makes them so 
keen to be secure and separate from everybody else. And I think often it is because the house isn't used full time. So it might be that people who live abroad have a place here. And that happens a lot in the sort of wealthier areas. But I I think it's very strange. I've always known my neighbours quite well. And in fact, very often socialised with them too. And I think it's actually a, a very nice kind of community if you can do that because you get support right there on your doorstep. It always seems very strange to me to want to be separate and to stay away from the people who live closest to you. Yeah, I think during uh, COVID and our lockdowns, that sort of proved the point that made it so exactly. People came together really well, didn't they? They did, Um, yeah. On the street and sort of talking to each other across the street and things. Doing shopping and things. Absolutely. Mm. So um, what was the what was the easiest and what was the hardest thing to write about the book? What did you find sort of engaging or quite difficult? I think the journey across from Eastern Europe of this young girl who I haven't actually mentioned yet, but there is a young girl in it who comes across from Eastern Europe. That was quite difficult because I wasn't quite sure how it might happen But I did have that confirmed by people who do deal with young people in particular who who get duped into coming across to this country because they're told there's a good job for them and they want to send money back and so on. I think that happens more than we're aware of. So that was quite tricky. I particularly didn't want her to be sexually abused because that's not the story I was writing. I was writing a story really about neighbours and secrecy and community and you know that that was really what I was after was the feeling of should we be responsible for our neighbours behaviour and should should we take it on if we feel they're not behaving properly it's that kind of feeling I wanted to get across yeah that's a great question that you can ask again and again isn't it yeah yeah different situations so your your key characters sort of Beth and uh, Sophia they're living in my mind are they living in yours will they be coming back in another book oh they're definitely for me they're always real my characters will they be coming back I don't No, I've never done a sequel to any of my books, but I can see that there might be possibilities in the future. So I never rule it out. And there are a couple of books I've got in mind that might work quite well as a sequel. And people seem to want me to do sequels, which is great. But I've I've usually, before I finish one book, I've usually got the idea for the next story, which is almost always completely different. So... Mm -hmm. Until I've got that one done, I'm not going to go back to one of the previous ones. Right. So all, your, all, all lots of different characters are knocking on your, your brain going, let me out. They are. They are. Yes. For the moment, they are. They may not in future, in which case I might consider going back. Well, they're great characters and they certainly did live in, uh, in my mind. It's a smashing book. So, Susanna, congratulations. Thank you very yeah. much indeed. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks. The Perfect Neighbour there by uh, Susanna Beard is published by Joffa Books and available from Amazon now. So each month around 16,000 books are published and and, um, October particularly important as we have the Christmas uh, trade coming up. So we asked Chantelle from the little bookshop in Cookham to recommend those new releases that have caught her eye this month. Let's listen to some of her favourites. 
Chantelle, hi. Thanks for taking the time. And you're going to tell us about your October favourites coming up. There's a lot of books coming out in October, so it's quite difficult to select a few. Should we start with fiction first? Okay, we'll start with fiction first. Uh, uh, Let me see, we've got a new Jonathan Franzen out. Uh, It's out now. I was listening to a review of that on the radio the other day. It sounds great, actually. Yes, set in the 70s. Sounds like it would be a nice gift. Very interesting read. And it's part memoir, part novel, isn't it? Yes. It's been a long time since he brought something out and he doesn't disappoint. Then we've got... This is Graham McRae Burnett. This is our independent book of the month, uh, which means that a panel of independent booksellers have picked this as their book to champion this month. I don't know anything about that one, so tell, tell me about it. So it's set in the 60s. A young woman believes that her sister was murdered by her psychotherapist. So she goes undercover and starts going to see him. Yes, it's, this is just a, a line from it. I've decided to write everything down that happens because I feel, I suppose, I may be putting myself in danger. Oh, right. So is that a, that's a thriller, is it? Yes, it's a thriller. It's so, probably one of our genres that's been selling the most since lockdown, really. So yeah, I'm quite looking forward to that one. The Lincoln Highway, Highway by Amor Towles. Amor Towles, of course, famously wrote Gentlemen in Moscow, which is book club favourites up and down the country. This is uh, slightly different. It's about someone who leaves uh, a juvenile detention centre and has all these plans he's going to go to the farm and get his younger brother and look after him and then when he's dropped off out of the boot climb two of his friends from the prison who have escaped and they have completely different plans so I haven't read it yet but I'm really looking forward to it but I'm also kind of nervous because you know we have we have a more towels on the pedestal so yes. yeah he's getting good reviews though yes it is it has been up and down since you know long time before it was released and then we have the John Le Carre Silverview that's coming out on the 14th. So uh, obviously that will be his last ever one. That's his unpub- unpublished novel. So we're looking forward to seeing that. Three Sisters by Heather Morris. She wrote The Tattooist of Auschwitz. So this is, it's not full of, it's a completely different story, but it's about three sisters who ended up and in the concentration camp and their sort of promise to each other to look after each other, but also to survive. So I'm sure it'll be a very moving read and one that'll be on everyone's list. Yes, certainly her previous book was a massive. Yeah, huge. I read that at, uh, in the summertime and by a swimming pool on holiday, bawling my eyes out. <laughs> it was not summer reading, but it's a, it was a beautiful, moving book. And I think that everyone should definitely read that. So yeah. I think it will probably be equally as important. Yeah, I'm sure so. And then we have got, as it's Halloween coming up, The Haunting Season, which is a collection of short stories by lots of very famous writers like Bridget Collins, Natasha Pulley, Kyrie, the list goes on. So we have to have a little bit of something for spooky season. Uh, I think that's a good call. Definitely get in the mood. Yes, absolutely. On that, should I go on to children's? Yes. Yeah, I love this. <laughs> this is There's a Ghost in This House. It's by Oliver Jeffers. Oliver Jeffers writes fantastic children's books. And this one doesn't let you down. Each page is it's a beautiful house, but it has these semi-transparent pages. It's about someone living in a haunted house. And she's like, apparently there's a ghost in this house and you can't see it over. And then you can see them peeking over the sofa. So they're very friendly. Right? That is a gorgeous looking book as well, isn't it? Um, another one that's coming out on 14th of October, which is the publication date, is The Lion Above the Door by Anjali Q. Rafe, who wrote... 
the boy at the back of the class amongst others. I think this is going to be a very important one for Black History Month. It's a children's book, but it deals with subjects above its age. She always punches above her weight. A wonderful writer. Great. Um, and of issues of Black History being whitewashed. So I think that's going to be an automatic purchase for lots of people. Excellent. Um, this one is another one important for uh, Black History Month and is also our Indie Book of the Month for Children. Uh-huh. Is the history of uh, the story of Afro hair. It's 5,000 years of history, fashion and styles. Absolutely not to be missed. It's not just for children. It's for grown-ups as well. Uh, it's very important. It's very interesting. It's very informative. And it's all done in a completely digestible, readable format. Oh, that, that looks like a gift book as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it's lovely. It's beautiful. It's yeah. Illustrations. And speaking of gift books, this is definitely one for Christmas. Harry Potter, A Magical Year. Of course. So we're about to celebrate the 25th anniversary, can you believe it, of Harry Potter and the Christmas Stone next year. (laughs) Isn't that awful? So this book is, it's not a new Harry Potter book, unfortunately, but it is all the illustrations from the illustration ones and it is quotes every day of the year from what was happening in Hogwarts or wherever. Oh, fantastic. I know, it's beautiful, not to be missed. That's fantastic. We'll be buying it, it'll be on everyone's um, Christmas lists. And then I've got a few uh, non-fictions for you. One is Manifesto by Bernadine Everiste. And that is going to be fantastic. Yeah, that's already out. That came out on the 7th of October. We have it in the shop and it's it's brilliant. It's just a bit of a powerhouse now, Bernadine Everiste, and she's championing people and uh, she's always trying to help people up. I, I just yeah. adore. I've got actually in the shop. Is that now? It is all you Foo Fighters and Nirvana fans. Dave Grohl, the storyteller. He's yes. A biography. So I think that's going to be huge. I love Dave Grohl. I mean, he doesn't love Dave Grohl. He's, he's you know very charismatic, very talented, brilliant musician. He's funny. He's charming, um, and he's lived so many fantastic lives. All squeezed into this. <laughs> short time it's, uh, it's just going to be amazing so yeah. I can't wait that's going to be good and then uh, there's the Lady Hale Spider-Woman I'm sure you've heard about this one it's an autobiography she's um, quite a, a glass ceiling smasher and I'm really looking forward to that one I think that would be quite big so I noticed that uh, Mary Beard has got a, a new book out of the 12 Caesars. Yes, I do love a bit of Mary Beard. Every year she she doesn't disappoint me. I love um, Women in Power and she's always just got you know something interesting to write about her Roman history. And yes, she always has a good angle. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And that's also out in, in October. I love Stanley Tucci ever since The Devil Wears Prada. I've adored Stanley Tucci. So this does have recipes in it. It's called Taste. It's it's a, more about his relationship with food, though. So he's um, a real foodie, though, isn't he? Oh, yes. He's the original Italian-American, big family, and, you know, foods, how you, where you go to when you're upset, and where you express your love for your family. And, that, and it's a lovely, warm book with lots of his family uh, recipes in. So we always have a proper cookbook as well. We've got the Nigel Slater, a cookbook. So, now, I've got to say, I love Nigel Slater's writing. If, if you're just reading the cookbook, you feel a better cook after you've, you've just read it, regardless of whether you try the recipes or not. It is packed. It's just, it's huge. And there's just recipe, there's recipe after recipe on every single page. Yes. It's amazing. And this is really just all about, rather than being very chef-y, it's about things that you can make at home. 
Yeah. I like the way that he sort of goes out into his garden and finds things and then wonders what to do with them. And, you know, just like we would do. Or he has friends coming along and they don't like chefy food. And so he has to cook something really simple. I just love yeah. Nigel Slater's books. He did in the garden. I did a foraging in my fridge. What can I make with this? <laughs> this aubergine before it goes or food waste bin. I have to rescue it. And yeah, that's that's more my sort of foraging style. But yeah. uh, I, I love watching him on TV. Yeah, I think he's great. I love that idea of foraging in the fridge. I'll, um, I'll adopt that. <laughs> um, as I know it's only October, um, but we have got... Christmas advent calendars in that are books so instead of having chocolates every day you open up the advent calendar and you have a book so for children <laughs> this Disney one and these are selling like hotcakes I don't know if we'll be able to keep up the demand to be honest with you each of those is a little book so I'm looking at the most beautiful it's quite large isn't it it's sort of a three size yeah Disney ones. I think I've got one Marvel one left that's sold out, and and we've got football ones as well. So that's got little books, and inside it are fact files, activities, and quizzes. So oh, that's a great idea. I know, I know, but you have to get in there quickly because they are selling like hotcakes, and it's yeah. only October. It's not even Halloween yet, and we're already discussing the c word. I know. I apologise. But it's it's just a bit like that this year. Yeah, I think so. And there's no harm in sort of organising yourself earlier than usual. We really appreciate those uh, those choices. Uh, you could have gone on and on and on. So that was a very curated list. <laughs> so well done for that. <laughs> and they all sound great. So thank you very much, Hunter. You're very welcome. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Yeah, I think that's a, a fantastic selection by Chantal. I mean, it's a radio, but it's quite a bumper month. And I really like the idea of um, a book um, uh, advent calendar. Ooh, isn't that a good it's idea? A really good yeah. idea, yes. And I think that, I mean, that's really good. And I think probably now, you know, this month we're well, just, what, um, halfway through October. So now's the time really to start thinking about your Christmas presents and your Christmas reading and popping out down to your independent bookshop. Indeed, all of you down in Cookham, go and visit Chantel and uh, place your orders if it's... Uh, not already in stock. Anyway, with a quick run through of the books that Chantal has recommended, um, we kick off first with Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen, published by Fourth Estate. Then there was Case Study by Graham McRae Burnett, which is published by Saraband and has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize this year. Oh, nice. Uh, Lincoln Highway by um, Amor Towles um, Hutchinson. Then there's the John Le Carre Silverview, <clears throat> his last ever book, published by Viking. And then we have The Haunting Season, Ghostly Tales for Long Winter Nights, published by Sphere. Just in time for uh, Halloween there. Indeed. And Taste, My Life Through Food by Stanley Tucci, published by Fig Tree. Excellent. The Manifesto by Bernadine Evaristo, published by Hamish Hamilton. There's A Ghost in This House by Oliver Jeffers, HarperCollins Children's Books. Uh, the Lion Above the Door by uh, Anjali Ralph, published by Orion. The Storo Afro Hair by Kayin Chimbiri, Scholastic. Uh, a Cook's Book, The Essential Nigel Slater by Fourth Estate. And then The Harry Potter and Magical Year. This sounded great as well, actually. <laughs> published by Bloomsbury and, of course, written by J.K. Rowling. Indeed. And last but not least, uh, David Grohl, the storyteller, Tales of Life and Music, published by Simon & Schuster. So that was a great selection. Obviously, there are many, many more. And if you go into your local bookshops, you'll find their own curated um, selection. 
Indeed so you will. always worth going along and finding out what can inspire you for the exactly. day. Now, we've been inspired by the River Thames, or rather a watery selection of books coming up. Um, and I've got to say, Julian, your first choice is mm-hmm. fabulous. How <laughs> did I not know Ben Ranovich? I know. He's fantastic, isn't he? He's fantastic. Incredible. So um, Julian does the readings before the programme and he sent me this reading of uh, Rivers of London by Ben Aranovich. And I've got to say, I laughed out loud three or four times during the reading. (laughs) It was marvellous. Good. Excellent. Glad you enjoyed it. Do you want, shall I put it on now? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Yes. <laughs> it was me waiting for you to run automatically. Yes, please. Would you play the, play the extract? <laughs> Rivers of London by Ben Aranovich. Chapter 1. Material Witness. It started at 1.30 on a cold Tuesday morning in January, when Martin Turner, street performer and, in his own words, apprentice gigolo, tripped over a body in front of the west portico of St Paul's at Covent Garden. Martin, who was none too sober himself, at first thought the body was that of one of the many celebrants who had chosen the piazza as a convenient outdoor toilet and dormitory. Being a seasoned Londoner, Martin gave the body the London once-over, a quick glance to determine whether this was a drunk, a crazy or a human being in distress. The fact that it was entirely possible for someone to be all three simultaneously is why good Samaritanism in London is considered an extreme sport, like base jumping or crocodile wrestling. Martin, noting the good quality coat and shoes, had just pegged the body as a drunk when he noticed that it was, in fact, missing its head. As Martin noted to the detectives conducting his interview, it was a good thing he'd been inebriated because otherwise he would have wasted time screaming and running about, especially once he realised he was standing in a pool of blood. Instead, with the slow, methodical patience of the drunk and terrified, Martin Turner dialed 999 and asked for the police. The police emergency centre alerted the nearest incident response vehicle and the first officers arrived on the scene six minutes later. One officer stayed with a suddenly sober Martin whilst his partner confirmed that there was a body and that, everything else being equal, it probably wasn't a case of accidental death. They found the head six metres away where it had rolled behind one of the neoclassical columns that fronted the church's portico. The responding officers reported back to control, who alerted the area murder investigation team, whose duty officer, the most junior detective constable on the team, arrived half an hour later. He took one look at Mr Headless and woke his governor. With that, the whole pomp and majesty that is a Metropolitan Police murder investigation descended on the 25 metres of open cobbles between the church portico and the market building. The pathologist arrived to certify death, make a preliminary assessment of the cause and cart the body away for its post-mortem. There was a short delay while they found a big enough evidence bag for the head. The forensic teams turned up, mob-handed, and, to prove that they were the important ones, demanded that the secure perimeter be extended to include the whole west end of the piazza. To do this, they needed more uniforms at the scene, so the DCI, who was the senior investigating officer, called up Charing Cross Nick and asked if they had any to spare. 
The shift commander, upon hearing the magic word overtime, marched into the section house and volunteered everyone out of their nice warm beds. As I said, um, it's really, I I have to say, it's really good. And what really is surprising um, for for this little gem, um, that it was actually published originally in 2011. Um, So, you know, uh, but... If there are our listeners out there really interesting, uh, it's great news because this is the f- Rivers of London is the first of 10 Peter Grant detective novels, right. um, which, are cl- yeah, t- there are 10 to go. Um, and they're classified as urban fantasy, uh, which will delight readers who enjoy magic and sorcery to be part of the present world, so to speak. For example, think of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, um, that sort of idea, yes. though, in fact, in different times. Now, Peter Grant is a young probationary police officer with the Metropolitan Police, is looking for a permanent position when he's involved in an investigation of a very bizarre murder, a beheading, which we heard, which was in front of St Paul's Covent Garden. Mm. He and his colleague, Leslie May, are guarding the scene when PC Grant encounters a ghost who introduces himself as Nicholas Warpenny, who witnessed the whole crime. Now, Grant tells May of this, and though Grant, uh, uh, May is a little bit sceptical, he helps Grant look through um, the CCTV footage of the night before and all the events described by Walpenny are confirmed by the film. Grant then goes back to the scene and meets a very odd detective by the name of Nightingale who doesn't seem at all phased when Grant mentions the ghost. Right. Anyway, the following day, as it so happens, Grant is, is, goes for an interview for a permanent placement and he's expecting basically to be put into a department which just pushes paper around. But to his surprise, he's posted to a hitherto unknown department headed by none other than this rather curious detective, Nightingale. And in fact, the secret department investigates supernatural matters and Nightingale tells Grant that magic is real. Now, Nightingale and Grant investigate the St. Paul's murder, and as they track down the main suspect, it's apparent that magic spells are at work as the suspect, having murdered his wife and child, collapses in front of the pair of them and shrivels away as a result of a spell, Nightingale said, called dissimulo. Now, if this wasn't enough, the pair have been called in to investigate, among other things, a turf war between two river gods, Mother Thames and Father Thames, with supporting acts from other river gods, because, as you all know, um, each river has its own god. Now, Mother God is a Nigerian lady who took over the job in 1957 when Father Thames decided he didn't really want to be responsible for the wicked part of London that that had the city in it. Mm -hmm. And he just wanted to concentrate on the nice bits. Um, So... Mother uh, Mother uh, Thames took it on, and she has two daughters. One is Beverly Brook, and the other is Lady Tyburn. Father Thames, for his part, has a son, Oxley, who's married to Isis. And this is all significant because they're all names of London rivers. The now, forgotten the rivers of get, London. But, the yes, forgotten rivers of London. Yes, yes, exactly, yes. Now, the story gets very involved um, as the Warring River families are interlinked with the magic that's causing mayhem and death. And in order to keep a grasp on the whole lot, P.C. Grant begins to study to become an apprentice wizard, the first of which, uh, the first ever apprentice wizard in England for 70 years. Now, I'm actually going to leave it there because there is just so much that goes on um, in the story. Um, and it really is, it, it, I can't do it justice in this little, this little chat. But if you really want to know what goes on in the Opera House in Covent Garden and how a, um, a ghost judge can issue warrants, then you'll need to go and get the book. 
Well, I've got to say, uh, it sounds brilliant. Yeah, uh, and just as a little a little side piece on 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 the rivers of London, um, of course, we all know um, the Thames. But did you know, for example, that Beverly Brook is a minor river rising up in Worcester Park and joining the Thames north of Putney Embankment at Barn Elms? Not at all, but no. I don't know that area. No, and the Tyburn River was uh, was a stream that started in Hampstead, running through Marylebone and Green Park before ending up in the Tidal Thames. And all of the others, the rivers Oxley, Lee, Ephra, Ash, Brent and Crane, all London rivers, all make their appearance in the book. There you are. Uh, yeah. I, now, used to, I used sorry. to work in a... Um, used to work for a company um, near... Um, um, Sorry, where did I work? Where did I work? At Clerkenwell. And oh, our yes. office was actually over a river. There was a river ah, flowing through. Right. So every time it's really bad raining, the, uh, the, the cellar would flood. <laughs> We'd have to move all our boxes. <laughs> well, the, um, the, 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 the uh, Rivers of London is still currently available. It's published by Orion. It's priced at £8.99. Oh, and just as a little side piece, the, um, the author uh, is a former Waterstones bookseller. Of um, Rivers of London, or for uh, yes. yes, for the Ben yeah. Aranovich. Yes, yeah, brilliant. Well, well done. That was it. Was a really good choice, and I haven't Thank read you. them. And in fact, as you're talking about them, I think I've seen them in the bookshops, but I've never right, picked that one read. up. So mm-hmm. I'm definitely that's one I'm going to buy today on the list. Uh, no, not on the list. It's being bought. Being bought today. Excellent. So we're we're hoping that Mr. Aranovich will have a very good uh, Christmas because all the listeners are going to rush out and oh, buy yeah. copies. Well, it deserves it. It deserves it. Does. It does. Definitely does. So I've picked a totally different type of book mm-hmm. and it's a non-fiction book. It was the Times non-fiction book of the year for this year and it was published back in February in hardback and it's now available in paperback and it's called River Kings by uh, Dr. Kat Jarman and it was about a bead that was discovered in a Viking warrior's grave and I can't recommend it enough. Mm. Now, if we're talking Vikings, I've got to mention Bernard Cornwell, of course, yes. and his uh, his fabulous series of books, The Last Kingdom, Uhtred, Son of Uhtred, Lord of Babenberg, and, of course, Lives in Cookham. Aha, nice local link there. Exactly. And ben, so Bernard Cornwell's written this fabulous series about... Um, a, a, um, Uhtred, who supports um, Alfred the Great against the Vikings, so he really knows his Viking history. And he says that um, this bead in Kat Jarman's hands taught him more about the Vikings than a score of other history books. And he saw it, it was astonishing and a compelling triumph, was his, uh, his blurb for the book. And I've got to say that uh, Ben Cornwell does do lots of research, so his books are, rel- are quite accurate. So mm. I think that's huge. And uh, Dr. Kat Jarman, she's a bioarchaeologist, and she uses cutting-edge forensic techniques in her research. So she follows this small sort of carnelian bead, which is found in a gr- Viking grave in Derbyshire, to its origins thousands of miles to the east in Gujarat. So her specialism is researching the paths of Vikings who came to rest in British soil. And she does this by examining the teeth that are obviously now over a thousand years old. And she can determine from the teeth in graves what the childhood diet was and therefore where a person was likely to be born. 
And then with radiocarbon dating, she can ascertain a death date down to the range of just a few years, which is just amazing, isn't it? Mm. Mm, And her research is really interesting because it allows us to see the likely roles of women and children in Viking cultures, which Mm -hmm. has sort of been hidden from our histories in the past. So the story of the book is basically in 2017, our Carnelian bead came into uh, Kat Jarman's possession. And River Kings sees her traces path back to 8th century Baghdad and India. And along the way, she discovers that the Viking route was far more varied than we might think. And with them, when they came into, uh, into Britain, they, came, they brought people from the Middle East. So it wasn't just Scandinavian people that Gosh. arrived. <laughs> and uh, the reason for this unexpected integration between the Eastern and Western world may well have been the slave trade running through the Silk Road um, and all the way into, into Britain. So absolutely fascinating stuff. And it really is. Well worth well worth a read. Uh, that does sound fantastic. Well, my my second book um, is 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 one that uh, went out of fashion uh, a long time ago, but maybe um, by mentioning it today, we might bring it back into fashion. I'm sure, and it will. <laughs> and it's the good old fashioned the water babies, a fairy tale for a land baby by Charles Kingsley. Uh, and this was first uh, was originally written um, as a serial for the Macmillan's magazine, which ran from 1862 to 18- 1863. Uh, And then it was published in one volume in later in 1863. And the story concerns young Tom, who's a chimney sweeps um, assistant, who um, uh, one day goes with his master, Mr. Grimes, to Hartover Place, the home of Sir John, to attend to the chimneys there. Now, Tom happens to find himself in one of the bedrooms and sees a young girl, Ellie, about his age or maybe a little bit older, asleep, and he's just observing it. Anyway, Ellie uh, wakes and seeing this blackened face uh, Uh, in the room. Uh, She screams in terror, bringing her nurse, um, running into room who thinks the worst, of course. Mm -hmm. In fact, she thinks he's a thief and doesn't realise he's he's, he's the sweep. Tom rushes away, um, uh, evading uh, Sir John, Mr Grimes, the gamekeeper, the nurse, and others who are in hot pursuit. But in his haste, he falls into the river. Uh, In the process, Tom starts to drown, but in fact, miraculously transforms uh, into a water baby. Now, Tom learns this because a cat fly tells him what's happened and from that point on tom begins his moral education Mm -hmm. now the story not surprisingly written by a parson concerns redemption but it also interestingly tackles um thorny issues of the day including england's treatment of the poor Mm -hmm. um as well as questions about child labor amongst other themes now, Tom settles in, uh, into his life among the, the, the water babies on St. Brendan's Island. And after he's uh, proved himself a moral creature, and from there he embarks on numerous adventures. And, and once a week, Tom is allowed the company of Ellie, who herself had fallen into the river uh, and became a water baby after Tom. Now, um, the uh, community of the water babies um, is overseen by three spiritual guardians, the one that we all know, Mrs. Do As You Would Be Done By, mm-hmm. and Mrs. Be Done As You Did, and Mother Carey. 
Uh, now, Tom's old master, Mr. Grimes, um, he falls into the river, but his fate is, is not particularly good. And he's, he's, he's about to be punished for the, de- the misdeeds he did whilst he was on land. Now, Tom travels to the end of the world in order to help Grimes find repentance. And in so doing, uh, Grimes is given a second chance so long as he successfully performs uh, a final act of penance. Now, because Tom's of, of his actions, um, in that he proved willing to undertake a task he did not like, but knew was the right thing to do. He was rewarded by being returned to land in human form, where he becomes a great man of science, planning railways, designing steam engines, and electrotelegraphs. Oh, now, great. Tom, and, isn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah, lovely. And now, Tom and Ellie are reunited once more on land. Um, however, the book tells us that they do not marry because only princes and princesses ever get to marry in fairy tales. There you are. Yeah, and the book ends with a caution um, to say that it uh, it's only a fairy tale, and the reader is to be to believe none of it. But with a wink of the eye, it ends with even if it is true. <laughs> <laughs> so when was it written? What was the date it was written? It was. Uh, it was. Uh, I think it was written in eighteen sixty one, maybe early eighteen sixty two, when it was its first installment came out right um now it is of course out of copyright so um but you will get um editions wordsworth classics or collins classics but there was also something a little bit of information about charles kingsley Mm. um he was a clergyman Uh, did you know heather that he was actually a canon of chester cathedral oh i didn't no and he was yes and he was a he was uh instrumental in the uh founding of the grosvenor museum in chester and Interesting as well, he also went to my old college, which is King's College London, but then went on to um, Cambridge. And he did so much, wrote books, he was on all sorts of things. And incredibly, having crammed so much in his life, I was rather shocked to find how young he was when he died. He was 55. Gosh, just mm. shows you the Victorians were real polymaths, weren't they? They, mm, they were. did lots yes. of things. Do you think we specialise too much nowadays? I think probably too. Yes, I think so. Uh, we tend to get that's our that's our subject, and I think probably um, it, it, it's the way our education's gone all the time. You know, when in in the old days when you and I were at school, we did uh, O levels, which you did oh maybe what seven or eight or nine or ten. Or, you could be, but then when it came to A levels, you were narrowed. Yes. The three. Yes. And then, of course, which is the same university, rarely did people do two subjects. It went to one. So, yes, I think we do tend to be a little bit, sort of, whereas, um, or maybe it's just the inquiring mind. Maybe Victorians had more of an inquiring, inquiring mind than we do. They didn't have any television. That's very to true. To watch. And it's all yes, those that, hours we waste playing, yes, playing computer ex- games and exactly. watching television. But what they did do, or what they did have, should I say, and we all have now, is books. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Well, that that was great. I, you know, I've never read. I know it's a classic. I've never read the Water Babies. Uh, have so, you not? I, so I, I did as, a, as a boy. It. It was, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. I now yes, know, you, I yeah. now know what the story is for the Water yeah. Babies. Lovely. <laughs> so going back to um, uh, the Ben Aranovich, who I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, my next choice is Once Upon a River by Diane Setterfield, mm-hmm. and. This was recommended to me by, by, by another author. I was chatting to her. And she introduced me to Diane Setterfield, who is a multi-million bestseller with, uh, with her first book, The Thirteenth Tale. And I've got to admit, I hadn't heard of her. 
So, of course, I immediately went out and I bought the book, Once Upon a River. And absolutely, it was brilliant. It's enchanting. The story starts on a dark midwinter's night in an ancient inn on the Thames in the late 19th century. So, about the same time that Mm -hmm. uh, Charles Kingsley was writing The Water Babies. Mm -hmm. So, the regulars are entertaining themselves by telling stories to each other. When the door bursts open and in steps an injured stranger. And in his arms is the drowned corpse of a child. So, that's how it starts. But hours later, the dead girl stirs, takes a breath and returns to life as if resurrected. Is it a miracle? Is it magic? And who does the little girl belong to? So the villagers are all expert storytellers because that's what you did. You just Mm. told each other stories. So they're trying to struggle to interpret what this means whilst also trying to identify the the girl who won't talk. And so in the novel, Diane Setterfield just captures this essence of uh, oral tradition, as well as the burgeoning enthusiasm for scientific ideas, because, of Mm -hmm. course, you've got the 19th century where we're all learning various scientific things. And all the major newspapers and magazines describe the books as magical, spellbinding, ripping, enchanting. And I've got to say, it is exquisitely crafted. It's a multi-layered mystery. It brims with folklore, with suspense and romance. And as well as this sort of urgent scientific curiosity of the Darwin age, when the, the story is set. And it explores the themes of storytelling, parenthood, science and society on the cusp of change. It, it really is fabulous. It won the HWA's Gold Crown Award, the Historical Writers Association Gold Crown Award for Best Historical Fiction in 2019. And it became a Sunday Times bestseller on publication. So this is gothic storytelling at its best, I think. Mm. So Once Upon a River is um, as richly atmospheric as her debut bestseller, The 13th Tale. And that was also a TV drama starring Olivia Coleman. Ah, right. I oh, don't know if you saw it, but uh, mm. it has that, that one, The 13th Tale, has been on the television. And Diana Setterfield lives near Oxford on the Thames, and you can really sense that the river is in her blood. Well, mm-hmm. it's certainly within her storytelling anyway. Yeah. That really sounds fantastic. Gosh, another one on uh, leg it down to the bookshop and that's yes. three books. Yes, fantastic. Well, um, one more thing to add, um, and that's the Cookham Festival has a winter warmer um, to keep us all entertained until the festival proper next May. Uh, now, this will be an event featuring a local lad, Nick Hornby, um, famous author of best-selling books such as High Fidelity, about a boy and fever pitch and it's taking place on saturday october 30th at the sir bernard miller center in cookham now there are very few tickets left uh, and anyone who's interested should go immediately to the cookham festival website which is cookhamfestival.co.uk as quickly as possible uh, now it's it's this it's called this evening of words music and food with Nick Hornby is your chance to see the Oscar-nominated screenwriter and award-winning author in conversation with actress and TV writer Zoe Lister, talking about his novels and films, and after a delicious meal, so that's included there, guests will enjoy musical entertainment from Rob Castell at the piano 
and an exploration of Nick's association with singer-songwriter Ben Folds. It sounds a fantastic evening, so really I would recommend, if you are keen, get onto that website, which is cookhamfestival.co.uk to book your ticket for the 30th of October. Uh, absolutely. So Nick Hornby, um, Oscar winner, mm-hmm. prize winner, fabulous best-selling author, uh, went to Maidenhead School. Um, oh, did he? school in Maidenhead, absolutely, yeah. Gosh, a thoroughly local boy. He is indeed, yes. 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 <laughs> You're listening to River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, you've got great book recommendations. If you run a local book club or are a local author, well, please contact me on heather at river.radio or julian at julian at river.radio with any of your book news and we'd be delighted to include some of your thoughts and ideas in future shows so uh, it's always good to uh, to have a recommendation well it is because i think you know um uh, we did have recommendations um from from a guest we had catherine in tunbridge wells and moco in london so really uh, please do just drop us a line if you if you if you found something um even if you think oh gosh well it's a bit modern or even if it's something you found in a second hand bookshop you know that that may be out of print but you know it's just to encourage reading and, and give us some ideas to share i think it's really important yeah Every book's a new book if you've not read it before. Exactly, it is. It is. So our hour is almost up. So a very big thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. And thanks also to author Susanna Beard, to Chantelle Farquhar from The Little Bookshop in Cookham, and of course to Julian for his readings. You are most welcome. So other books we've been recommending today... Uh, well, we kick off with The Perfect Neighbour by Susanna Beard, published by Joffy Books. We've got The Rivers of London by Ben Aranovich, published by Galantz. Well, orig- well, originally, we'll just put it because you can get it from Orion Paperbacks. Ah, great. Yes, yes. Sorry, that's my, my, my typo there. Cat Jarman's River Kings. Uh, we've got The Water Babies, uh, Charles Kingsley, and that's a Wordsworth classic. Mm-hmm. And Once Upon a River by Diana Setterfield, uh, published by Transworld. Great. And keep do listening to uh, River Radio Live as Let's Talk Business is on at one o'clock today. And uh, today it's all going to be about mental health and well-being. So presenter Sophie Comas will be joined by Trisha Wilkie from The Mind Hub and Melissa Gale from See Within. And to talk ideas and uh, suggestions about mental health, which of course is really interesting. And we often talk about books to do with mental health, don't we? Exactly. And I think a very important subject. So yes, it'll be a programme well worth listening to later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So what a great um, series of uh, books that we've had um, this well, I, I I have to agree with you. I mean, it's it's just um, like falling into a bag of big sweets, isn't it? I mean, where where do, you know where do you start? I mean, I'm really keen on the on the two cookery books because I like to cook and I like Nigel Slater particularly. Stanley Tucci I like also as an actor, and it's interesting to, to you know his 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 cookery book will be interesting to see. But I think what I like about um, uh, Nigel Slater uh, very much like Delia Smith is that they are are cookery writers rather yes. than professional restaurants. 
restaurateurs, and I think the cookery writer is is more simpatico to you and me, you know, ordinary people pottering about in our kitchens. You know, they they create good recipes for 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 ordinary people, not your fancy pantsy things that you get in the restaurant. So Nigel Slater, number one cook. Right yes, up. is that is that the one you're going to rush out to buy? Yes, well, it it's is. Certainly, been a great selection. <laughs> so we look forward to you joining us next week between eleven and twelve on River Radio, and to find out what books we'll be recommending then. And if you're not able to join us, then you can listen again directly from our website. And Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. So you just need to search for Turning Pages on River Radio podcast. So River Radio is available on the web, on mobile and on Alexa. So we look forward to seeing you and uh, you joining us next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.